I think I'll try and make a... Welcome once again to the Marx Brothers Council podcast, and there it was, that legendary line from Hooray for Captain Spaulding that you thought you'd never live to hear, sounding like you'd heard it there all your life. Oh well, at least we'll be able to tell our grandchildren that we remember the days when it was still missing. And that's the theme of our podcast today, folks. Marx Brothers missing, mislaid, and perhaps even mislabeled. Marx Brothers lost and Marx Brothers found. I'm Matthew Conium, speaking to you from the village of Peasdown St. John, the East 93rd Street of Northeast Somerset. And as always, I'm joined by the two most eminent Marxian scholars it's possible to obtain at short notice. First, and in that order, we have our very own Breath of Broadway, the man who advised Chico to drop the K from his name on the grounds that it would make things less complicated in the long run, Mr. Noah Diamond. Very happy to be here as always. I'm here on the 175th Street of East 93rd Streets. (laughs) And next, we have the man who advised Gummo to go into cardboard laundry boxes, Mr. Bob Gassell. Hi there, everybody. I'm here in my basement. I've turned my air conditioning off to record this podcast, so let's get this done with. Come on. (laughs) And we're joined this time by two of our very good friends from the Marx Brothers Council. A little later, Bob is going to be talking to Tom Rocks, the man who discovered that if you want proof that a night at the opera is set in Italy, you have to go to Hungary. And right now, right here in our virtual studio, we have researcher extraordinaire and the man who once bet Richard Anobili $100 that he couldn't make Groucho swear. Mr. Stuart Trister. Yeah. Good evening, all. If it is evening, wherever you're listening to this, um, I'm I'm the new person here, so I'm, I'm, technically it seems all okay. Just the one thing that surprised me was when Bob told me that one had to be naked for this. So, just do anything, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, just you, actually. Oh. So that, of course, was um, we had animal crackers at the top there. And what that reminds us is that it, it's not hopeless. These finds do get made still. Um, animal crackers was discovered very recently. It wasn't discovered anywhere strange. It was in a film archive of all places. Um, As we'll see later, there's some some tempting news about a night at the opera. Um, Our friend John Tefteller has a whole mouth-watering raft of thought-lost radio appearances waiting for us, including long-lost complete episodes of uh, The Circle and Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel. Um, And yet we do, uh, Marx Brothers fans do fixate on on what's lost. I, I suppose... I don't know if that's more than than fans of other comedians uh, do. I suppose it maybe is in part because there are just so few Marx Brothers movies. But it it is a constant obsession, isn't it? Yeah, the constant hunger for more. And I think you're exactly right. It's because there's a fairly limited supply of Marx Brothers stuff, especially when they were in their prime. And not only is the material itself um, fascinating, the stories behind why certain footage is missing and why we can't see it is often more interested in the footage itself. I mean, it's pretty miraculous in itself, the fact that these are comedians who were in their prime uh, about 100 years ago, hundred years ago, and that we are able to see these people who've been dead for a long time, in some cases born... We, we, well, I'm not, except for Chico, but in some, some cases people who were not born when any of them were alive mm. are great fans, and this medium, and the, it's, it's these little snippets and bits of stuff, and every time another piece turns up, we know them a little better. And as well, of course, the things that are missing, there's, there's the things that, that nearly got made and never got made, things like uh, Billy Wilder's project from the 60s, A Night at the United Nations, um, their adaptation of, of The I Sing, which was seriously on the cards twice, uh, their biopic, which was likewise uh, taken to a serious level of preparation at least twice in their lifetimes, and according to plans, would have featured all five brothers in a, in a wraparound narrative. 
Um, the adaptation of The Three Musketeers, which turned up as a, a side product during their brief association with RKO uh, and ended up with the Ritz brothers. And of course, Deputy Seraph, the TV series that got as far as shooting uh, the Marx Brothers material from episode one, uh, only to be abandoned when it was discovered that Chico was too ill to play a dead person. I think because of all the special qualities of the Marx Brothers, they always attracted interesting collaborators, both the people who they did indeed work with and the people who tried to get Marx Brothers projects going and didn't for one reason or another. That's a pretty fascinating group of creative people in their own right. And although this could be true of other comedians or comedy teams to some extent, I do think it's special in the Marx Brothers case that there are proposed or abandoned Marx Brothers projects helmed by people as different as Salvador Dali and Billy Wilder. Mm -hmm. I mean, the might-have-beens in their case are fascinating, partly because they aroused the interest of so many interesting artists. One of the, one of the tantalizing names is Lubitsch, who was a kind of a, a mentor of yeah. Billy Wilder. Uh, but the thing about it is, some of the things in Duck Soup, for example, Leo McCary, who was a real comedy director, and some of those are the things that we think are the least typical, of course, even even the ones we like. And if you look at Monkey Business and, and Horse Feathers, Norman MacLeod, he let them get on with being who they were. So it's, it's tantalizing. Yeah, you think, how would they mesh with another major talent as a director, for example? The writers is a separate issue because they either knew what to write for them or they didn't. Mm -hmm. But with the directors, you wonder, would it have been better with stronger comedy directors or was it better to have someone like MacLeod who let them get on with it? I think the evidence strongly suggests the latter. But I think it's a separate question whether any of these might have been projects would have been like the greatest Marx Brothers masterpiece. Probably not. Uh, but it still would be interesting. And especially since uh, after their prime, uh, particularly in the MGM years and beyond, there was a sense of not knowing what to do with them. And just the tantalizing possibility that if somebody had really successfully tried to do something completely different with them, maybe that would have been interesting. Of course, instinctively, we, we, we think of them as the Marx Brothers who make the movies and, and we, we fixate on the, on the missing bits from their movies. But I suppose it's important before we, we get carried away uh, with all that um, to not forget that, in fact, the great majority of their total output is lost to us because the great majority of their total output was on stage. Uh, and so not only is none of mm -hmm. it filmed, I mean, with the arguable exception of uh, House That Shadows Bill, but, uh, you know, a lot of it doesn't even survive on, on paper. Uh, and so it's an entirely lost world. And, and I suppose, really, we should be most mourning that, as, as, as I guess Noah has, has most cause to, uh, to agree. Yeah, that is how I feel. I mean, I realize sometimes that that is not necessarily a majority opinion among Marx Brothers fans, but to me, the virtue of the films is that they give us a taste of what it might have been like to see these guys in their natural medium, which was the stage. And I suspect for me personally, if I could have seen everything they ever did on stage and then were to make a list of my top 10 Marx Brothers moments, I wonder if anything from the films would have, would have qualified. The closest I ever got to, to an eyewitness to their really early work was a lady I got to know in the late 1970s. I was in my teens. Um, someone who had seen them on stage as a child in about 1914. So she remembered that Gummo had still been with the act. 
Wow. And I try, I tried, I mean, it was a very early childhood memory. I tried to pick her brains as much as I could. And, and the only detail of any interest that she could, I mean, they, she said they were wild. It was the usual description of this totally anarchic act. But the one little detail, which I think in a couple of places I found later on repeated was with Chico and the piano that it was on an angle. They had it on an angle on the stage so ah. that the audience members could see how he really get a good look at his, his at his fingers on the keyboard to see ah. how he did it. So that was the one piece of, of rescued information from this old lady that I managed to get out of it. And the other thing um, that may be worth mentioning, we say we have nothing of them in their stage prime apart from House of Shadows built. Let's not forget this apparent experiment that Victor Herman did before uh, Animal Crackers. Apparently in, with the aim of showing you didn't need all the musical numbers to just film as it were the whole everything without the musical numbers and show that it still worked yes which probably doesn't exist but that would be tantalizing as hell to think it might that would be remarkable it's always interesting too i mean coconuts and animal crackers as films it's often said not incorrectly that oh well they basically just put on the broadway show or a, a, a edited down version of the broadway show and filmed it but imagine if they had actually literally done that um obviously it was hard enough in 1929 to make a talkie on a sound stage bringing all that equipment into the theater i'm sure mm-hmm. it was unthinkable um but imagine if we could have a filmed record of them just performing one of those shows for a live audience that obviously was decades away from being technically feasible but yeah that's something that's you know that's in our imaginations i'm sure when when we watch these films is imagining what the laughs what the, how they interacted with the audience how they responded with the ad libs could you imagine like on PBS on great performances the marx brothers in animal crackers well one one thinks there are these little snippets mainly going back the, the i think the earliest going back maybe to the 19, late 1920s where people sneaked cameras into broadway shows like 16 millimeter or something and shot yeah. little snippets there's i think there's a whole uh, youtube channel which has a lot of these things and Miles Kruger at the Institute of the American Musical has a vast archive of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and he, you know, releases clips for documentaries and things like that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, including, I think, the Ziegfeld Follies of 1930 and lots of great shows. But unfortunately, uh, it's all just a little too late for the Marx Brothers. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine Groucho at the beginning of the show telling everybody to put their phones back in their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> And Noah, obviously your experience with um, Alsatias was, was very much an exercise in archaeology and, and, uh, and renovation and restoration. Yeah, the, the idea that uh, there was this Marx Brothers piece that um, hadn't been seen on stage since they did it, but of which research revealed there were enough fragments to put something together. Uh, yeah, I've, I've devoted a, a good chunk of my life to trying to um, create some semblance of what it felt like to be at the casino theater during the run of Alsatias, um, specifically because of what, what we're talking about, that passion for trying to squeeze a little more Marx Brothers out of the tube. You should do it on stage sometime. I would like to. I would like to. <laughs> Getting back to having a record of the Marxes in front of a live audience, there's a chance that there might be a, a version of that when we get to Go West, when, we'll, when we're going through the film yes. here. But uh, we'll get to that. So everybody <laughs> just stay tuned and keep listening. 
it is possible that Go West, there is an audience there and they're just not laughing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's look at their uh, their film careers then, because I think it might be quite handy to go through a kind of film by film and take a look at what we think is uh, is relevant for each one in terms of missing material, and, and who knows, maybe even uh, whether we think that there's some things that might still uh, be found. One thing I did earlier this week with our Facebook group was select what I thought were the four most important missing things and put them in a poll and asked people to vote for, for the thing that they would be most excited to hear had been restored. And the, and the four things I chose were the missing sections of Horse Feathers, um, the 1950s TV show uh, in which all five brothers appeared in a live segment, Humorisk, the entire film, and the missing parts of A Night at the Opera. And I'll, I'll tell you how the votes went as we as we go through. But because it's not a film, let's just start with that with that um, that TV show, which I can tell you got 25% of the vote. Bob, I think you'd probably be best placed to to tell um, Englishmen and simpletons like me exactly what that was. It was the Tonight Show, but it wasn't the Tonight Show or something. There was a period of time um, after uh, Steve Allen, who founded the show, after he left as the host, and then the next iconic host was a guy named Jack Parr, uh, who came who came along a few months later. In the interim, there was a few month period where they reinvented the show and called it Tonight America After Dark, and it was sort of a a magazine show where you know just different segments focusing on different things, you know, going on location and so forth. And uh, the Marxes were apparently interviewed. Backstage in Hollywood, Chico was performing a show. What was the name of the show he was performing Fifth in? Fifth season. Fifth season. And I believe it was the opening night that it was it was being performed there. And uh, actually, Robert Bader uh, discovered that apparently this was a filmed interview that they did with the brothers that was actually rolled into the show a few nights later. It wasn't live. Which dramatically ups the chances then of it of it being. Uh... It's possible that that separate film exists, even if the episode doesn't. But nothing's come to light as of yet. Not even an audio recording. I I think the best bet for that would have been would have been Gummo. I've I've spoken to John Teptler about this, and he said that all the searches that have been done for it, no nobody you know Gummo's uh, kind of attic, as it were, has never been systematically searched. But that sort of as their agents, I think if anybody was going to be given a like a Super Eight copy, you know, like at the end of um, This Is Your Life, they always give them a Super Eight of the show. So right. there, there was obviously you know it was understood that posterity value you know counted for something and as you've said bob it was it was announced at the time as a momentous thing it wasn't something the importance of which was only realized afterwards right that's the most frustrating thing because so many of these things you look back on and go oh if they had only known this was a big event but they knew it was a historic Hmm. event before it's even advertised that way am i wrong in thinking that this would be maybe the only footage of gummo has anybody ever seen film of gummo i've heard his recorded voice on that birthday greeting to Groucho. Right. But I don't think I've ever seen film. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean so he, he apparently would have would have been in that in that fifties biopic if it ev- if it had ever come to fruition. But uh mm-hmm. th- as far as I'm aware, yeah. that's the uh, the only time he was he was filmed, yeah. Has he ever been spotted in the audience if you bet your life? Yes. Yes, I think so. So that kind of counts, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. It's too bad that Gummo wasn't on the dock with Frenchie. In monkey business. Yeah. Having them all wave to the camera, that would have been a perfect moment. Yeah. Okay, let's look at the movies then, and we'll start with uh, with The Coconuts, their first sort of official release. This is where I had a problem with your poll, because my choice for the Holy Grail is apparently the preview-length version of The Coconuts was about 45 minutes longer than what we have here. Groucho and 
Maggie might have done a, a song called A Little Bungalow that was in the film that was cut, but it's never been documented exactly what was cut from the film. The The play was reworked a bit from uh, the stage version, a uh, lot less, it was a lot less uh, cut than Animal Crackers, but mm. the preview version of the film was actually longer than the stage <laughs> performance. <laughs> I mean, if I remember rightly from reading the, the, the play script, I don't remember any major comedy sequences not making it into the film. I could be wrong, but uh, I, I think all, most yeah, of it's there. Yeah, there's no, like, Dewberry scene. No. We can console ourselves that we're probably only missing music. Yeah, I, that's probably true, but maybe maybe uh, at least a little bungalow duet with Groucho mm. and Dumont and... Uh, possibly Groucho's solo, too, from the show, Why Am I a Hit with the Ladies? Oh, that would be something. <laughs> <laughs> it is odd. There's no, there's no Mark songs at all in there, is there? And, and apart from uh, Hurry for Captain Spaulding, there's none, there's none in Animal Crackers either. It's, it's almost like a deliberate decision was made, uh, almost like what was made at MGM later on, that, that maybe they shouldn't do, do the singing. Yeah, the loss of the um, Dubarry scene is, of course, in Animal Crackers, is also the loss of We're Four of the Three Musketeers, which it would be so wonderful to have that on film with them performing it. But that seems to have been Herman's idea to just say, we don't need all the rest, we don't need all this padding. And I, I, I assume he must have been very familiar with the... Uh, with the film version of Coconuts. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he was a Marx Brothers fan before that already. And um, mm. looking at what how he could do better than Robert Florey did, apart from the technical uh, advances that must have taken place in the interim, a little bit at least. We found a lovely clipping, didn't we, where uh, he, he was sort of justifying the loss of the Dubarry scene by saying that we can use it next time. We'll keep, we'll keep that for the next film. <laughs> it does kind of make sense as a cut, because as I think you've pointed out, Matthew, it it was the piece of animal crackers that you could lose without mm. damaging the structure of the whole thing at all. And it is also true that animal crackers, as much as I love it, above all the other Marx Brothers films even, by the time you get to the end of Animal Crackers, it had, there is a sense of exhaustion. And, you know, if there was an, an entire 20-minute comedy sketch tacked onto the end there, I, I don't know how it would really feel. I'd still rather have it than not have oh, it. Yes. But it did make sense as a cut. They had in all of their Broadway shows, they had things like the Napoleon scene from I'll Say She Is, um, which was also, which they performed on its own on stage. And they had the Spanish Knights uh, from Coconuts, yeah. really, which was integrated into the plot in the film, of course, but it was kind of detachable. So you had in each of these, you had some kind of big number that they could take on tour and uh, and as a kind of a showcase just for themselves. Yes, and specifically a big number that involved seeing the Marx Brothers in elaborate period costumes. Right. And that was really part or of the Or exotic, formula. like the Spanish stuff, yeah. Yeah, exotic or, or period. And and when you get to monkey business and they get off the boat and go to the party, you can almost smell that instinct, like yes. we're going to send them to a costume party now. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't quite fulfill that part of what had been their formula. Except that bit when Harpo's in the bustle. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, and Groucho gets to do his cowboy character a little yeah. bit. Getting back to Coconuts for one second before we move on, this Glenn Mitchell mentions in uh, Marx Brothers Encyclopedia that four minutes appear to be missing from the release version, the 1929 release version. I mean, there are little things that we know um, seem to have been filmed because it still exists. If I'm not mistaken, I didn't, I didn't check this up before we got on the air now, but um, there is that moment where you have a picture of Harpo at the auction scene with a snake. And in the actual, and there's nothing like that in the film. And in the script, I think there's something yes. like when she when she kisses him. In the film, we have 
I must kiss you again. He threatens to, to, to hit her. But I think in the he actually kisses the snake. So that was apparently filmed because there's a still of it, but it must have been lost at some point. So that brings us on to Animal Crackers, which is the one that uh, we're all happy with now. Is that right? Are we all any problem? Any lingering problems with that one? <laughs> any, anything you want to really get cross about now? This might be a good time to mention the uh, the infamous car footage, the test footage that was mm. shot on the set. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the purpose was of shooting that, but I, apparently there was a a travelogue uh, film that came out a few few months later called Wonderland in California where this footage was used, which is interesting because it was all, all this footage is from Long Island. <laughs> yeah, but if you go out the other door in the Rittenhouse Manor, you are in California. <laughs> right, and if you've seen this entire film, which is not hard to find online, you'll see after the Animal Crackers footage, there's all these shots of models. Yes, yeah. And then it's all being shot on the Animal Crackers set, on the outdoor garden well, set. Very often this type of film used to be made to show off a color process, to, to show what it could do. So they'd pick the subject sometimes to, what? where do we have color? Well, models in costumes, for sure. And, of course, the big regret is the few seconds we have Harpo in color, we do not see the color of his wig. Yeah. Although yeah, it's a compensation, the fact that he shows up without it, to, to see him like that, Groucho in makeup and him like that, together. So it probably means that they came at some point in the shooting, maybe they, everyone was ready except Harpo or something, and they said, let's shoot this footage. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see a scenario where they were shooting the... Chico stuff, and the guy came and said, "Let's grab Harpo out of his dressing room." And they woke mm, him up, and he mm. ran out there and shot. <laughs> he him. just yeah. ran out in his yeah. eighty-dollar bathroom. Yeah. But luckily, we get to see the color of Groucho's tie, which I know is a, a, a big <laughs> yes. thing. A big thing in the Matthew. <laughs> yes, red necktie confirmation. But I think another part <laughs> of the um, fire engine red. <laughs> I think another part of that the um, that color footage is that is that they were quite rightly um, very very proud of that set. We found reports that that describe it in in very very loving details just what a wonderful set it was and how it was constructed and how they've got you know fake grass and fake gravel and fake trees and this and that and and they they just seemed to think it was something uh that was really a, a part you know a star of the show in its own right which which I, I can only agree with but i think that was an element there mm. it also means that it's not just us looking back and saying wow these wonderful art deco sets they knew it then how great it was yeah okay that brings us to monkey business and monkey business um, brings us to the distinction between missing material and material that that simply isn't there, um, and I think we do always have to bear that in mind. That that uh, basically every film ever made uh, has things that are shot that don't end mm. up in the film, and that's that's not an outrage. That's not uh, right. that's not something that uh, you know we need to mm -hmm. to light light the burning pitchforks and, and storm the studios about. Uh, and so particularly in in monkey <laughs> business, there are there are these again very very exciting stills showing. Harpo with uh, Billy Barty, in one of which he's in a nurse's right. outfit, um, and so for you know obviously it would be wonderful to find to find that footage, but I I think it's just something that that got lost along the way. My suspicion is that it got lost along the way because of the Punch and Judy sequence, which I imagine, like most Harpo scenes, was written into the script very, very vaguely uh, as, as, a, as a description, and which then I think grew so much in the recording that what was around it uh, got squeezed out. And I think that was one of the bits that got squeezed. I suspect there was more material with Rolf Sedan as the barber as well. Um, so I think we're just looking at the, the natural evolution of a motion picture there. Another still, which, is, which I've recently come across, is from the barbershop scene where they're snooping the guy, and the barber chair is 10 feet off the ground. Yes. Like, like they, in the Great Dictator scene yeah, with, with yeah, Apollonia, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah. Th this isn't just a gag shot. They apparently 
concocted something that was shot and then used in the film. I think one assumption we can probably make with reasonable uh, certainty is that the things that are missing that we, we'd like to see, that probably at previews, if not before, but at least at previews, they realize that this just held something up, that it killed a later laugh maybe, or something like that, which they thought was mm-hmm. more worth preserving. There are a couple of just tidbits of um, alternate take footage in the trailer for Monkey Business. Trailers are always a rich source of that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. yes, and uh, Animal Crackers as well. There's some very, some very different material. Big, big, big store and Go West have both got extra lines. Yes, that's right. You used to do this in Vaudeville, and uh, it's just like something from a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's just like a movie. <laughs> So now we come to to the big one, or at least uh, according to the res- the results of our poll, uh, the the missing material from Horse Feathers uh, got a staggering fifty percent of the vote for the things that uh, people would be be most keen to see again. So uh, Noah, perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, Horse Feathers, of course, is one of the very few films that we can say this really was the golden age of the Marx Brothers as film comedians. So to get one more second of it would be obviously very precious and and something to celebrate. Um, When you're watching Horse Feathers, of course, when it gets to that sequence, you are keenly aware that it's all chopped up and there's missing material. Um, It's not obvious how much material is missing, including the Harpo alone with with Thelma Todd piece, which we would all love to see. Um, But you you do feel as though that sequence has been butchered in a way, whatever may be missing from coconuts, there's never a a cruel cut that makes you say, ah, we we missed something right there. I'd I'd give anything to have it back. Um, Horse Feathers is particularly interesting to me because of its connections to, I'll say she is, will be Johnstone having worked on the screenplay. And that sequence in Thelma Todd's room is particularly a descendant of the Napoleon scene. And um, it would be great to have it as a reference, as reference material for Mm -hmm. that too. And it does involve all four brothers as well. Yes. The interesting thing about Horse Feathers, it's got three different classes of missing material. There's literally uh, bits missing in the sense uh, of that there's the the sequences with Harpo uh, and the lampposts uh, and also the the, the, the the end part of the Thelma Todd scene um, is missing and it seems that all of those went after release because they were talked about in the reviews. They were talked about in many cases as as particularly strong parts of the movie so there's been some speculation that they might have even been been very uh you know thoughtlessly removed to put in a compilation or something so there's there's things like that, that are missing then there's the the bulk of the thermotod scene which of course is in an appalling condition but that's that's not deliberate that's um decomposition of, of the material and then there's the third thing which of course is the original ending where the college burns down and that uh was definitely shot it was removed and replaced uh by something else so so it's not missing in that sense where it you know it should be there and, and it isn't uh but nonetheless it was shot it did exist it was quite substantial and it was there as late as uh getting into the press releases because a lot of the reviews talk as if it is still there was the reason it was cut was because of a real life fire, or I think it was something like that, wasn't it? Or maybe I'm confusing this with the fire at the end of a Night at the Opera or something. Well, my memory of that one was that was that it was just decided that that you know that was not a feel good ending for a movie, just in general. You know, the idea, you know, audiences don't want to be sat in an, in an auditorium watching a fire in an auditorium. Um, Thalberg did his homework on that one. <laughs> 
so getting back then to the bit that that really sticks in the craw, which is the the scene uh, that we have of of the of the boys in Thelma's boudoir that's in in such bad condition. Um, there were really there were such high hopes when the when the the most recent round of Blu-rays were being prepared. Um, you know, another huge search was uh, mm. was uh, was instigated. Once again, it's it's come up blank. Um, so far as we're aware, there are there are there are two possible avenues for this. Uh, one is that Susan Marks did have an intact copy. Uh, and in about 1970, I think again we have we have John Tefteller to thank for this. She lent it out for a screening, and it was never returned. So it's it's it could well be in in the sweaty palm of uh, a jealous uh, collector who knows exactly what it is. So uh, as as shameful as that is, that's a very very happy prospect for the for the film the alternative is unthinkable that it, it somehow got lost along the way and they didn't know what it was and it, and it got junked the other avenue of course is the, is the famous one from from alan Ailis's book uh where he saw it in a, in a british cinema into the 1950s it was actually a friend of his it was a friend of his yeah who took notes uh, and originally i thought well why was he taking notes if it wasn't if they didn't know it was unusual but i guess you know people did then you know joe took notes didn't he of every film he saw um because you know you didn't you didn't see them all that often in those days so i guess that makes sense but anyway mm. he took these notes and and then alan uh published them in the book i suspect this might be connected with a, a reference that i found in in leslie halliwell's autobiography when he was running a specialist cinema in cambridge in the 1950s the students there loved the marx brothers and he says that he personally persuaded Paramount to strike one more print of each of their films. And he says that these prints then went around and around England, around the repertory cinemas, until they basically fell to pieces. So although it's almost certainly uh, bad news for that print, what it means is that Paramount had intact materials as late as the 1950s. Have you ever heard the theory that broadcast signals from our world may ev- eventually <laughs> find their way to, you know, uh, other galaxies and yeah. that there could perhaps be either now or at some time in the future beings we can't imagine in, in corners of the universe we could never conceive and they are right now sitting on their equivalent of a sofa and saying, oh, it's the entire horse feathers print. <laughs> Guys, I think we have the plot to the next Star Trek film here. <laughs> But it was a great pity when that you know that search came up blank because I, I suspect you know there's not going to be another big search that was that was the kind of make or break search so uh, it, you know maybe if it turns up it'll probably be a total accident of some kind. yeah yeah duck soup is is a more interesting one because most of the very interesting variations on that are things uh, that took place before its final form was finalised. As we know, it had a, a, a very complicated genesis. Different writers, different directors, uh, the Marx Brothers uh, leaving the studio for a while and coming back and various other things. So there are lots and lots of very different scripts. We talked in the last podcast about the uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf sequence, which was shot after the film was finished, added, taken away again, presumably lost. There are some notable cuts in the film, particularly if you if you go online and dig out the early script, you'll see that the laws of my administration has had quite a few bits of lyric chopped out of it. And you can you can spot where the snips are if you read along with the film. Um, there's also the prospect of, of additional Zeppo material. This is probably the most contentious suggestion, but it, it has been claimed that Zeppo's role uh, certainly was larger at various points. At script stage, it's been suggested that it, th- th- this got as far as filming and that there was some material with him and Raquel Torres that was far more substantial than what we have. That, it, you know, somebody did once say was still in a vault. Um, it's not something I'm wildly inclined to believe, but the claim has been made. 
there are those alternate lines, the, the ones that we hear in the radio promos, um, from, mainly from the opening scene. Yes. Which is where in the film we've got that big insert, haven't we, where his jacket changes. I've come around to the point of view that Cracked Ice, the early version of Duck Soup on paper, um, it was maybe the greatest movie they never made. There's a tremendous amount of material in those early scripts that didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes because it's more politically abrasive than the final film. But I, I think that point has been overmade a little bit. Um, there's just lots of good material. And uh, last year, many of our listeners will know, in New York, we held a Marx Brothers weekend on Governor's Island. And we did a reading, uh, some of the off-Broadway cast of I'll Say She Is and uh, members of the Marx Fest committee did a reading of material from Cracked Ice. Um, I, I edited out all the familiar stuff that did make it into the movie so we could just focus in on on everything that was unfamiliar. And boy, there's a lot of good stuff in it. And, you know, the reading went over very well and, and the material sounds great and it's authentic Kalmar and Ruby Marx Brothers stuff. But it's particularly a pity that it didn't make it to film because there are so many visual ideas that would have been wonderful to see, including a scene in which Groucho and Zeppo uh, jump out of a, an exploding dirigible and they're floating downward back to earth on parachutes. And it, the screenplay notes that the smoke clears from the screen. And that's when we see Groucho and Zeppo descending together on parachutes. And what does Groucho do? He turns to Zeppo and he says, take a letter. <laughs> and he dictates a letter to Margaret Dumont, <laughs> telling her that he'll be there shortly. Can she meet him halfway? Um, it's wonderful. And, and uh, it, I would love to have been able to see the film that they might have made from that script. Yeah, I mean, you say that um, some of the script, some of the changes were because it may have been politically abrasive and, and that that's been overstated. I mean, nobody, uh, you know, has sort of made the case more that, than me that that is overstated. Nonetheless, I was amazed when I was reading some of the early scripts to find uh, not only references to, to Flywheel as a dictator, we want to meet your new dictator, but also the fact that he's an ammunition salesman. Yeah. It's made very, very clear in the first scene that he's an ammunition yeah, salesman. it was a lot more satirical, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's just brazenly a war profiteer. But it's 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 a it's the missing motivation. It's in the in the version we have when he does his whole little monologue about extending the hand of friendship, and then and Trentino arrives and he ends up slapping his face again. Um, it's just Groucho being perverse in the way we love, in a way. But in the in the original script, that kind of thing has more of a motivation. He wants war because there's money in it for him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and Margaret Dumont's faith in him even seems more sinister under those circumstances <laughs> uh, than it does in the in the film they made. But as you say rightly, yeah, there are so many brilliant jokes in there. Absolutely, and and a lot of great long Spalding esque speeches. Groucho's a much more loquacious Groucho mm. um, in in Cracked Ice than he winds up being in Duck Soup. No, everything in Duck Soup is 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 staccato. It's 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 you know little little tiny pieces and then on to the next thing, which is fine. You know, as I say, I always have to have to say this whenever I talk about Duck Soup. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's uh, it's a, it's very different from what was originally written. Yeah, it seems like Duck Soup was really built out of these separate parts, which and they had to somehow make peace among them. It was the Cracked Ice script, plus a whole lot of flywheel shyster and flywheel material, plus the Leo McCary, um, his influence on the film. And those three elements are kind of, that's the real war in Duck Soup, actually. It's the war among those three groups of, of creative, those sources of creativity. 
2.5% of our vote be damned. One of the things that most intrigues me in the whole world of, of missing Marx Brothers is uh, the, the, the strange edits in A Night at the Opera. And uh, for more on that, I'm going to hand you over to Bob. So as most Marx Brothers fans know, the first portion of A Night at the Opera takes place in Milan, Italy. But all references to that location have been edited out for decades. Exactly when and why that took place is not known for sure. For a long time, it was assumed it was done uh, for a re-release during the early 1940s during World War II because America was at war with Italy and the Axis powers. And while that's still possible, more information has come to light recently that hints that the cuts were done in the late 1930s and not as a punishment or nothing against Italy, but to placate them, because there were stories that came out that Italy was not happy with the way Italians were treated in the film and the way they were portrayed. So MGM recut the film to take out those negative references and to take away any direct reference to the beginning of the film taking place in Italy. I know it's a bit silly because the characters still have Italian names and Chico is still being uh, Chico, but for decades, that was the only print in the film that was known. You know, there have been searches and rumors of other prints, but nothing has come to light until a little over 10 years ago when a young Marx Brothers fan, a member of the Marx Brothers Council, a fan of the podcast, and now a friend of mine, a guy named Thomas Rocks, who now lives not too far from me in uh, New York State. And while he was living in Hungary, he came across a print of the film that is quite different and more complete than anything we've seen. So here's an interview I recently did with Thomas, where he tells the story in his own words. Enjoy. So now we're joined by uh, Thomas Rocks. Uh, that's how he pronounces his last name for those who are interested. Thomas has uh, come across some interesting artifacts regarding the, the Marxes in A Night at the Opera. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Thomas, tell us a little about yourself and your background as a Marx Brothers fan. Sure. I would say I was a Marx Brothers fan half my life since uh, 2004 when I first saw Night at the Opera when I was 14. And I've tried to get as much knowledge as I possibly could about them. And somebody since called me a Marx Brothers aficionado. And that's what I go by these days. I'm a Marx Brothers aficionado. So let's get into this. Uh, so you were living in Hungary. This is where we're going back a little over 10 years. And yeah. you ended up at uh, what, what we know is the Hungarian National Film Archive. Can you yes. tell, tell us about how you, came in the, how you came to that place and how you knew that they had a print? Well, they had a website where they were listing all the movies that they had. And I saw that they had a night at the opera. And the, the actual archive is really close to where my parents live. So it was about two or three bus stops, and I, I went. Uh, I think there was a time when I went there twice a week just to ask them, "How can I watch this? What would you need from me?" Mm -hmm. I had to write petitions. I had to tell them what my whole purpose was, and that was the way they were finally allowing me to view this. And I was only able to view the first reel. And because it costs money. Yes, because I was in American dollars. What are we talking about? How much? Um, this is going to sound ridiculous. I could have watched the whole thing for about two hundred and fifty dollars, but I was eighteen years old. I was a college student. It was my first job, so I could only watch the first reel. Hmm. Yeah. Well, now <laughs> nowadays, if you would have let people know that, that, what you had there, we, we would have had a Kickstarter and got yeah. you through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good idea. That's a great idea. 
from reading your accounts of this, it sounds like you were very familiar with the film. Yes. Because you noticed the differences pretty early on. Yes, yes. I have to admit, there, there was a period in my life when I would re-watch Marx Brothers movies once a day. Mm-hmm. I'm very certain I've seen Duck Soup at least 23 times. Night <laughs> at the Opera, maybe a little bit less. But mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've known the whole movie by heart. I memorized it. Okay, so let's get into what you found. And um, just so people know that not only did Thomas see a, a version of Night at the Opera, which seems to be less cut than our current version, but it also seems to have some alternate shots. Uh, it seems to be an alternate version. But I'm getting ahead of myself here, Thomas. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us what you saw? I think the most accurate way of describing this was exactly what you said, that it's less cut. Um, what we all know that the movie started with a big sing-along where different waiters were passing down a song to each other in Italian, and that's how we ended up in the restaurant with Mrs. Claypool and uh, and Mr. Gottlieb, and that's how the movie started. Mm-hmm. And that's when you watch the movie now, you see this big jump cut, which seems unnatural. It just does not seem right when you watch the movie. Right. That jump cut is still there. So it's not the entirely uncut thing, but I do not know if the movie was ever released that way. I don't know if it was ever uh, released that way because um, you know about how Thalberg had this emergency cut made when they first previewed it and it wasn't as successful as he wanted. Yeah, that's true because in all the contemporary reviews of the film, and I've gone back and looked through a lot of them, I've never seen that scene mentioned. Yeah. So perhaps it never did. I don't know if we know that it ever did get seen publicly. Exactly, exactly. And that was my assumption, too, that it might have been cut before it was released to the general public. But playing devil's advocate, Thalberg was such a stickler for quality, you would think he would have had it done a smoother transition than the abrupt cut which starts the film now. That's but, right. It is but, very noticeable. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So go ahead. So what I noticed uh, immediately was uh, very small things in Italian. You know, a, a si signora here... Just just these Italian people responding in Italian, which you don't get to see in our known version of A Night at the Opera. And there are other references to Italy that are there. And I actually dug out my uh, Night at the Opera MGM Library of Film Scripts book, which has the shooting script, and it has the one that was actually shot in it. Here on page 22, it says, uh, Groucho says, the fellow that sings at the opera here, and Chico says, sure. And Groucho says, what's his name? And Chico says, what do you care? It's some Italian name. I can't pronounce it. What do you want from him? Well, in the version I saw, it actually contained this line establishing that hmm. it was in Italy. Uh-huh. Wow. And the other thing that I remember, which is on the next page right here, I remember it because the projectionist was actually laughing at it, was uh, Groucho asking Chico, are you an Italian? And Chico says, I don't know. It's only my mother and my father who are Italian. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those those little references were, were definitely there. And I remember that uh, the part where Kitty Carlisle is singing was different. It was a different shot altogether. And that was really surprising to me. So according to this, you, you were only able to get through the middle of the uh, contract scene at the end of the reel. So that's about as far as you saw. Yeah, that's right. the first reel. So, okay, so this is interesting. So when you got done with this, like you must have turned to the projectionist or somebody and said, wait a minute, this is this is a different version. What did you yeah. do immediately afterwards? Did you talk to somebody at the archive to let them know what they had? You know, after that, I was going back to the archive. I was writing them petitions, telling them just how important that is. And I was met with a general apathy. I can actually remember them telling me that, oh, we have a lot of other very important things here as well. 
So they didn't seem particularly interested in this at all. Right. And they told me that in order for us to have anything happen to this, it would have to be the copyright holder who would reach out to them. Because mm-hmm. I have no right to do anything with this. Right. Did you try contacting somebody else? Yes, yes. I try to uh, talk to some representatives from, I think it's Warner Home Video. Yes. Who was that? And at that point, they did not have an actual representation in Hungary anymore. Mm-hmm. But I did write emails. I did uh, mention this to various archivists. I mentioned it to people who are important uh, in the Marx Brothers world. I don't want to name names. Gotcha. But it was met with some general apathy and uh, with... This is not that important. That was generally the reaction. <laughs> it, it's sort of sad. It, yeah, it, it, is. it is. It is. You know, and it seems to me Warner's attitude is like, well, it's not the complete film. It's still not the complete film. So why should we bother? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, you you found one that's a little more complete than what we have, but it's not still not the full thing. You know, and that seems to be their attitude. And what really bothers me is that this isn't just some catalog title, some middle-of-the-road film. This is a film that's on many lists among the greatest films of all time. Yeah, you yeah, know, So you would think somebody at uh, somewhere would would want to rescue as much as they could, even if it was just five seconds here, ten seconds here. Yeah. Every time I go back, I try to refresh my connection with the, the film archive, and I know exactly who they would need to talk to. So I would be more than glad to give their contact information out. I would be more than glad to help this happen. So thanks so much, Thomas. You are really the envy of uh, pretty much every Marx fan in the world is you have seen footage that pretty much nobody else alive has seen. So consider yourself lucky, and thank you so much for your contribution to the Marx uh, story. Well, I'm really glad I got a chance to see it, and I hope that one day we will all get a chance to see it and own it in our collections. Maybe we'll just have to break in and steal it. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I have a crowbar. And the shovel and axe and the dynamite. (laughs) So thanks to Tom again for the interview. Um, He has forwarded me the info of the archive, so I'm going to try writing to them. Maybe we should all (laughs) inundate the place. (laughs) At the very least, if if they can't release it publicly, I wish there would be somebody there that could get an intern, they get somebody in the archive to look at the print and perhaps even just compare it to the home video version. If you don't need their permission to view it, then presumably you don't need their permission to make and publish notes about what's in it. So I think the first thing is, is you know, let's just get someone in there to just to just watch it, compare it with the DVD, tell us what's different. Let's let's know what we're dealing with. And then at least, you know, we've, we've got something to, other than guesswork. It is interesting that the opening uh, musical number is still gone, which opens up the possibility that that was cut even before any of these uh, the rest of the Italian stuff was done. I think so. I think I think they made a kind of a token effort um, and then and then went back and did some more. If this if if the musical number at the beginning was lost and that horrible jump cut with which the film starts, it does just doesn't it doesn't make sense that Tholberg would permit something like that. It just it looks too sloppy for his name to be on it. Well, but his name wasn't on it. I was about to say that, of course. I mean, of course, I I realize that, but the the man, he he knew quality, and he just, would he have let it go out at all without, um, I don't know, reshooting, somehow smoothing that over if for some reason it had to be lost? If it was done in 1938, then he wouldn't have had much of a say. Exactly. That's the question, is if it went out like that originally, 
And as we've said, we, we're not finding the evidence that people raved about this fantastic opening Ever so, that's and, a good point. And, and, that's and a good claimed point, yeah. that it was ripped off from a mammalian or something like that. Yeah. Although having said that, actually, and this is a point um, that Joe was making in the, in the, in the Facebook group uh, this week, um, I think we are hypercritical now. And we are very, very savvy when it comes to this sort of thing. I mean, I must be honest and say that for the first 50 times I watched A Night at the Opera, it, it actually didn't strike me as a particularly clunky uh, cut opening. I can see it now, uh, but I wonder if original audiences necessarily would have seen it that way. You know, in fact, to that point, the first... Actually, when I was a mere boy and a beardless youth, long before I got to see a night at the opera, I had read many times and even memorized the contract routine as it appeared in Gene Shalit's anthology, Laughing Matters, a celebration of American humor. Uh, I had this book and it, it prints the contract routine, I think excerpted from the published screenplay. And it includes those jokes, you know, uh, I Chico, I, I just look that way. I just look Italian because my mother and father were Italian. Um, and the name of the singer, oh, it's some Italian name I can't pronounce it and so I knew those lines to the point where when I first saw a night at the opera I missed them I thought oh there's some missing jokes there and as I mentioned the time though what makes this all the more striking is that this is considered one of the greatest films of all time so you would think that the studio would do everything they can to restore it as much as possible exactly exactly yeah this isn't some catalog second tier title yeah, I mean, it's not even, you know, at the circus or something, you know, and it would be driving us crazy if it was at the circus. But, you know, it's the one that is, it's one of the two that is considered uh, their best film. It's the one that, that's in most of the anthologies of the 100 best films ever made. Uh, it isn't, it isn't some, some minor comedy. You know, if they own the thing, I mean, for God's sake, just, just have a look and <laughs> it's crazy. The one other thing we should mention about A Night at the Opera, it's not necessarily something that was cut from the film, but it was shot that, uh, apparently near the finale where there was a, a parade and another reception at City Hall. This is a still that we know, and, so, and it's, you, you, you think this is the, the scene with the aviators, except you realize they don't have the beards. That's right, right. yes. Right. Ah. And it's in the published script, yeah. But when you look at the film as it ends right now, you know, with uh, them backstage there, I can't imagine that they thought there would be another scene after that. Like, so I don't know when that scene was going to be. Maybe it was previewed and they realized already come to the end of the movie what do they need this extra stuff for but in a way it's funny because that's that's a little bit like the way that the races does end suddenly reprises of musical numbers that have already been chopped out yeah but you wonder maybe if something similar happened to horse feathers in fact you know they may have just thought well you know we've had this big football game that's kind of the ending and maybe that's why climax you know, on top of climax yeah, yeah yeah and while we're on a night at the opera i would be re i would be remiss if i did not mention and i've been hinting at it since we started this podcast, but I've never actually gone into it. And that another thing that is lost is an identity, and that is of our lovely manicurist in the uh. stateroom <laughs> scene who, who? who, whose identity is not known. Every person in that stateroom scene has been identified and is credited, but the manicurist who actually has two lines that are not yeah. throwaway lines there, she is not credited. Then she appears earlier in the film, as Groucho is rushing through the crowd to ask if his hotel bill could be paid. I think she but, uh, is the Pandu she... of Muftan. <laughs> <laughs> if you notice the stateroom scene, when the people come pouring out, it fades very, very quickly, almost too quickly. And there is an existing still that hints that the scene might have gone on a bit longer with uh, Margaret Dumont uh, looking at Groucho 
hugging the manicurist on the ground. Yes, yes. <laughs> because, Bob, the real manicurist is the friends you make along the way. <laughs> Behind the scenes, uh, Rodney and um, and Matthew and I have spent the last few years uh, chasing leads, trying to identify the manicurist to no luck. We've even went as far as trying to find the name of the MGM studio manicurist of this era. And it's surprisingly how often, isn't it, that we find reports saying, you know, the studio manicurist has had a screen test. It seems to be one of their kind of stock stories, but it's never the right one. Wait, and then we just had that we just had that thing where somebody gave us the name, and it turns out she was referring that they were referring to the wrong person in the still. Oh, yep. yeah. yeah. And we, we all got all excited. We thought, this is it. <laughs> so if anybody out there can help us identify the manicurist, we will name an episode of the podcast after you. <laughs> we will have you on. And we will we will actually give you the whole podcast for a month, and you can do with it what you want. <laughs> okay, so now we come on to the the later MGM films, and although once again we have to bear in mind the distinction that I made with Monkey Business that there is a difference between missing material and material that was taken out. Nonetheless, I think we do have more right to question these decisions because in the case of monkey business uh basically some monkey business was taken out to make room for some more monkey business and that's just par for the course what we tend to get with mgm uh is marx brothers material taken out which is much more compartmentalized um and non-marx material left in and that obviously stings a bit more uh, and so i think we we can question the editorial judgment a bit more than we would uh with the paramount films with the day at the races obviously we have the hackingbush song we've talked about it before in earlier podcasts uh i think we're all agreed that it wasn't filmed um but it was it was scripted for some reason it was taken out and uh, although I think we, we we differ as to how much of a fan we are of the song, uh, obviously it, it should be there, and it isn't, and it's a, and it's a, a great annoyance. And if it doesn't fit in the film, that's a fault of the film rather than a fault of the song. Yes. Yeah. Well. Well put. Yes. I think in general about all of these later films, we've looked at at the trade papers and seen these comments the exhibitors make and say how who liked which film and. Um, We've got our favorite theater owners who have their opinions, their film critics. The studios must have been also listening to these people. And if if there had been a huge wave, get rid of the musical numbers, we just want comedy, uh, they'd probably have gone closer to doing it. <laughs> Here's a question. If Dr. Hackenbush had been included in the film, would it have also been part of the medley at the end, uh, rather than reprising a bit of, uh, or kind of, reprising a number we haven't heard yet when Groucho sings a little snippet of uh, message from the man on the moon would he have burst into I'm Dr. Hackenbush yes. in the finale running toward the that's camp. one of the big hints that it wasn't filmed yeah right right because Alan Jones did record message from the man on the moon but the recording exists even though the scene the, the visuals don't and apparently we know exactly where that would have gone that would have gone very early very first Gil and Judy scene I just wonder if that song had been allowed to live, if it would have, if its influence would have been felt in the later films, you know, if maybe Kalmar and Ruby would have been called upon to write numbers for Groucho each time, because they didn't make any other contributions that really made it into a day at the races, maybe a couple of little things early on. But, um, you know, that would have been nice. And we also have that tantalizing Go West young man, which mm -hmm. um, pops up in Copacabana, but seemingly, I don't yeah. know, actually, was it written for Go West? Yes. Or? Yeah. So, I mean, that's another example of uh, 
it could have been part of their later formula. And I do think, although those numbers would have been out of place, um, you could say that about so many highlights of these movies. Groucho could have sung Dr. Hackenbush in Love Happy. <laughs> would have been, that would have been most welcome. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have taken much prompting, let's be honest. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, there is a lot of unfilmed material from early drafts of Day at the Races, lovingly and in great detail documented by Adamson. Um, the early drafts, Peace and Quiet, um, being the uh, prototypical day at the races. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does seem, as as Adamson convincingly asserts, that that would have been an interesting Marx Brothers movie. A, a thing much more about a sanitarium than a racetrack. And very interesting other drafts of Go West and Big Store. Yeah, the the approach seems to have changed. Like in, in the, the Paramount Hollywood trilogy, the creative process seems to have been about, like, what can we put in? What can we put into this scene? And then later at MGM, it seems to be more a matter of what can we take out? What isn't getting enough of a laugh or what doesn't uh, work for the pacing or the Thalberg formula? Right. And I think that's part of why the, the films get stingier as they go on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Paramount, they seem to, you know, like on Duck Soup, they probably previewed it and said, oh, this needs to be funnier or this isn't funny enough. At MGM, they went more along the lines of, is this a good film? Is this a better film? Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we go on to the other the other MGMs and, and the last couple of films, um, there's the, the very special case of Room Service. Yeah, the backstories to room service might be more fascinating than the film itself. Um, as we first noted in the annotated Marx Brothers, the Marxes did announce that they were going to do some performances of the material on tour like they had with uh, Night at the Opera and a Day at the Races. But those plans never came to be, and they soon changed it and announced that they were going to do a performance or two in the L.A. area. And what ended up happening, according to Robert Bader's book, they did do three performances on the back lot of a studio in front of friends and family. Uh, we don't know whether they did the whole thing or just selected scenes, but it is a real fascinating anecdote to the Marxist story. Yeah. Um, I would love to know more about these performances, but it's, it's very hard to pin down any more information on it. Well, it makes a wonderful rehearsal, that is. <laughs> <laughs> and Rumors of it obviously is another example of a film that we most mourn uh, what happened from, from conception to, to completion, because obviously, as we know, originally... The idea was for them to, to completely strike out and do it as a as a as a before you know as the play in its own right with with them playing the characters with with Harpo speaking uh, Groucho without his moustache and then even when that I think was was slightly modified um, Murray Riskind always used to say that he just you know very very vaguely adapted the play to the, but it, he didn't he did write a very good first draft that was like a Marx Brothers movie lots of good jokes in it that don't make it into the final script for some reason uh it was the the, the coldest feat of in the history of cold feet um they they just they just completely backtracked <laughs> and made this absolute halfway house that was neither one nor the other and it's 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 not a film i dislike at all i enjoy it very much but when you think you know what they originally planned when you look at that 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 uh, first risk in script um it, it is odd that they that, that they decided to go for for such a bland compromise and it's obvious that they knew it as they were making it and after they finished that it hadn't lived up to their expectations it does seem like a great lost opportunity to see if they could have reinvented themselves a little they bit could have, if had that worked apart from the fact i personally find this side this uh, three musketeers idea very interesting because it puts them back in into the period costumes which they did so well with in these scenes in the earlier shows whether that could have yeah. really changed uh, 
the the problem that we have with the late MGMs, whether that could have been something totally different, whether we could have had more experimental somehow um, experiments as as shooting off from from room service into a, just simply a different direction than the one they actually went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange to find this comedy team. They were so trapped in their formula after the formula had already failed several times, you know, to work for them. Um, you know, usually you would think it would be at the crest of their success. I suppose it is coming off the crest of their success with opera and races from their point of view at the time. Um, but to us, it's as though they were already in unmistakable decline when they uh, sort of tried but failed to do something different. To me, the most interesting period of their career would have to be from when Thalberg died through the making of At the Circus. I would love to find out more about all that period in great detail because there's so many things that went in unexpected directions that are unexplained. Well, the whole Mervyn Leroy business where he was apparently trying to shape up to be Thalberg number two and what went what went wrong there and when. Yes, definitely. That's that's the most interesting of all the kind of underexplored, I think, chapters of their whole career is the, the, the misunderstanding. I mean, obviously, we'll come to this more when we do a, a show just on At the Circus, but the misunderstanding that that was a kind of a back to MGM, back to Mayer with their tails between their legs. And it, and it really wasn't. It was a kind of a we're back and this time we're with Leroy. And uh, the way that crumbled almost instantly is really a story worth telling if only uh, if only we could get more on it. We tend very easily to, to, we just look at the credits and, and see how they go from one studio to another, have different creative people. But they knew all these people from way back. I mean, Eddie Bazell, um, was not just in vaudeville with him. He'd been, he'd been seeing Susan uh, Fleming before, you know, at the time that Harper was getting involved with her. Um, Mervyn Lee Roy at the, we, we have Marx Brothers at his wedding or the engagement party. I've forgotten which one, which it was. Yeah. Um, to 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 um, the heiress, the Warner Brothers, you know that kind of thing. So these are all people with whom they mix for years and years. They're, these are hardly strangers. So it's it may seem to us a new direction, but okay, let's go with Mervyn this time and Eddie, both of whom are very familiar to them. Mm. Mm-hmm. You've uh, pointed out, Matthew, that by this time in their careers, the Marx Brothers were sort of becoming a nostalgic, a nostalgia act. Um, and they were sort of in 1940, yes. older comedians of an earlier era. Um, and that is, I think, a, a key insight into the nature of these later MGM films. Yes, one of the At the Circus ads says, you know, here they are again with their old time comedy. It actually uses that phrase. So when you're the kind of act they were that was acerbic and iconoclastic, um, it, it, it is a very strange um situation to find yourself in and it's got to have an effect on on the confidence of the film and i think the material and the performances and 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 whatever else are only really part of the story and a huge part of the story is just is the times Mm. is the zeitgeist and uh you know we see it you know the 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 transition from abbott and costello to uh, sorry from laurel and hardy to abbott and costello is kind of the transition from the marx brothers to the road movies and it's just they're just they're just out of time and i think you could have given them the funniest script in history and the public you know would have would have pretty much felt the same way about them that this was an act that they knew really really well and you know some people like them some people don't but there's nothing exciting about them anymore and it's very very difficult to sustain the kind of comedy that the Marx Brothers did, which relies on 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 surprise, you know, on on uh, on on moments of not shock in the in the modern sense, but you know, um, 
what's the word you know that that kind of rhythm that kind of stabbing rhythm um it's very very difficult to sustain that when you're not at the cutting edge and i think that's what we see in those in those mgm movies and that's why i think we we don't really mourn uh you know the the loss of what's in them i mean a good example being groucho's first scene from at the circus which is which was shot mm -hmm. which survives as stills um but which is now missing uh imagine if that was a, a whole groucho scene from monkey business how how we would be would we would be uh cursing the loss of that i was thinking about that scene and looking at the script it's not necessarily any worse than much of the other comedy material in the film i'm I wonder if it was cut for time reasons and that uh, by this period, the studios were much more inclined to be showing double features and that they were trying to get this film like as under 90 minutes. It, having it there would have made it a bit more like Day at the Races because like, you see Groucho at the job he's being called away from. You get this kind of introduction to him. And the way it is now, he just suddenly shows up. Okay, we know Chico's sending a telegram, but we are deprived of, of any kind of... We have no idea what kind of lawyer he is. Except we know it's Groucho, so we have an idea of that, <laughs> what that suggests. Yeah. So, yep, yeah, so that just leaves the other the other MGMs. I don't know how much detail we want to go into there. I mean, obviously, um, Go West has got a song missing, but it's not a Marx Brothers song. It's a, it's a, it's a, a straight song. Um, I'm not aware of much missing from the big store. Oh, Bob did mention um, that some... some Foot test footage was made of the the live tour of Go West uh, on 16 millimeter. I think on silent 16 millimeter, but it, it was made. There are separate reports of film footage and audio recordings of the Go West tour made for for reference purposes, not necessarily for creative purposes, just so they get for timing laughs and for blocking the the visual gags. The odds of that turning up are almost nil, but that might be the one recording we have of the Marxists performing in front of a live audience. Yeah. But unfortunately, nothing else from Go West was lost. <laughs> okay, so that brings us more or less to the end of the story. Honestly, there is there is Love Happy, which exists in two versions, but we have both of them, so that's fine. We can, we can compare and contrast and pick the one we want. Uh, we know that there is um, a scene was shot um at the start of night in casablanca groucho's first scene very much again like at the circus his first scene um is missing it's not bad if you've got the little novel version as i have it's quite a funny scene he's uh he's running a motel in the desert and uh first uh an arab is is checking out and there's some uh debate as to whether he was staying with 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 27 wives for 28 nights or 28 wives for 27 nights uh and in the end the whole thing is blown away in a sandstorm so that you know that that sounds fairly amusing but again you know it's 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 not something that we need to <laughs> hammer down any walls to find but we have pointedly left out uh one film which is their first film humorisk and the only marx brothers film to not survive for one one second of it of its footage in any way shape or form and i'm going to hand over to Stuart. i'm going to backtrack for one moment because to, just to before i get into that night in casablanca i think we I think a lot of it's in the letters with uh, Miriam's letters where basically there was a cut of this and that's when they became really dissatisfied with Archie Mayo and I think there was a major re-editing going on at that point afterwards so like it changed humorous the, the fun thing about this is the fact that relatively recently only three years ago um, 
we succeeded in uncovering a few more things than usual. And there's the whole question of the status of its possible existence. There's there are some people for whom we have a great deal of respect who are very adamant that the chances of humorous existing in anywhere, any way, shape, or form are zero, and not one fragment of anything above zero. Um, and the point here is, I don't think we disagree that the odds are almost zero. It's just that we're not willing to go quite that far, because and to do this, I, I thought about a few lost films. What are, what are lost films here? There are all kinds of famous ones, and they're all different cases. Um, in movie history, you've got things like London After Midnight, Convention City, films that were definitely released, they were out there, and they're lost today. And in some cases, we know when the last known print disappeared. Um, and in other cases, you know, you can, you can wonder, will something turn up? The chances are not zero. People are looking for it for reasons. The complete greed. We have a pretty good idea that uh, the studio junked everything that they didn't want to release in the end. You have crazy things like uh, Dreyer's Joan of Arc, where the whole thing was destroyed and he remade the movie with his alternate takes. And then not so long ago, a print of the original turns up in Norway. And you got Metropolis, the full version turning up in South America after many, many years and attempted to reconstruct without the footage. Blacksmith, also South America, what turns out to be Keaton's original release and what we'd known all along was an earlier version. So you've got all these interesting things going on. And one of the things I'll already kind of skip ahead to is now that we know that businessmen were involved in this and not just childhood friends or associates who chipped in money, you got to look at another thing. If they junked the film, if they were going to junk it, which is the the only way you can say, if it was destroyed, if it was knowingly destroyed, then you can say it should be zero. Where you have cases like um, Woman of the Sea, produced by Charles Chaplin, also known as Seagulls, with Edna Proviance, Joseph von Sternberg. In 1932, when he was having a lot of trouble with Lita Gray, with tax money, he was negotiating with the, with the Internal Revenue Service, and he notarized, it was notarized, the destruction of the negative. Because so he could write it off, so the value would not be just nil as he claimed, but it couldn't be more than nil because the film didn't exist anymore. So you have these cases where it's really notarized. The stories we know about about humorous, even if they're true, they involve. Sometimes they say they destroyed the film. Sometimes they say they left it in a projection booth or they left it on a streetcar. But that's a lot different from destruction, and you don't know even if it was left in a projection booth or left on a streetcar somewhere. You don't know what happened to those prints. So you can't actually say 100% rule out that they've um, survived. I think there's only one case I know of where you can really rule that out. It's a case I heard of. Um, I got to know a filmmaker called Victor Stoloff, uh, who, in the late 90s, who had been a very interesting career, born in Russia, got into the film industry in Egypt, etc., etc. In the late 1930s, he made a film at the Siwa Oasis um, which he had almost, he told me this when I met him, uh, almost completed and he got up in the middle of the night to, to, to make another cut in the negative and in rewinding there was a spark and the entire thing went up in flames. And that was the end of that. Like he could be 100% sure that film never saw the light of day anywhere because the only material. 
So these are, these are the cases of lost films, and we cannot say 100% that humorous does belong to that. So the, the genesis of us looking at this again was uh, Matthew was going to write this piece for uh, Brenton Film, which has a website on silent films. Uh, I'd met the guy in Italy and put the silent film festival in Portnone. I already knew him. This was before Matthew had the uh, the arrangement to write this piece. And um, he'd begun working on it. And I think Matthew will correct me if I'm wrong, um, that he mainly intended simply to lay out as well as he could, hopefully maybe find a little bit of extra, everything that was known about it. And at the, originally, I contributed a little to this. I think it was mainly in helping with um, Helen Kane's career around this time to see to what extent she could really fit into it. And then, and, and here I have to explain that since a couple of years before the annotated Marx Brothers came out, there's been a kind of a back channel we've been on. Matthew and Bob and I and Ed Watts, who's at the moment kind of off it, working on a Keaton book. And we continue to use this occasionally for all kinds of things, like we found this for the second edition. And this was the fun thing, because the whole thing happened rather suddenly. And I went back. Facebook doesn't make it easy to, to find stuff going way back. But I went back to look at some of the stuff, the discoveries that went on here. And it seems that it was actually Joe Adamson who accidentally kicked off a little bit more. This took place almost exactly three years ago. Joe kicked it off because there was a discussion about what the guy in the picture is holding in his hand. Is it a clipboard, the one next to Harpo? We had known all of these ideas about who the characters were, who these guys were, Lipman, Sachs, Posen, um, and others, Kibitzers, as they're described in the various books, and had never thought to doubt seriously the best answers that had come up until then. And I went looking for Lippmann. It was one of the things, that was my first thing. It was a red herring I found here because I found a Max Lippmann whose daughter was learning to dance with Ned Weyburn. I thought, Ned Weyburn? This is the guy responsible for the Nightingales. And I assumed it was, I assumed this could be a connection. And somebody had clipped this in the Brooklyn Eagle, I think it was, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And I went on looking to see what the same person had clipped. Turns out, for a long time, I thought I still had the right Lippmann, which was wrong. But I went on far enough until I found an obit of a Max Lippmann, who at that point I thought was the same one, who was a partner in Lippmann and Sachs. Was this a coincidence? So I wrote then, uh, weird, but you know what I'm thinking? Maybe the Nathan Sachs and Max Lippmann, who invested in Caravel, had bugger all to do with show business, and everything we thought we knew about Sachs, Latvia, South Africa, movies, acting, are simply an understandable mistake. Everyone's looking for those names in show business. Desperately, like the mention of a late 1940s still photographer called Max Lippmann. And through Ned Weyburn, the Marxes got Lippmann and Sachs lawyers to invest in their company. Here, I, I, I still didn't know, but this was the point where I said to Matthew, um, apologize again to Brenton, but we may have something here, because he was going to be late with the piece if we added to it. And wanted to know about his gut. And then suddenly, I, as, as I wrote, I don't usually swear, and comes out a four-letter word, we're onto them. Do you remember that 1929 item about Groucho and Harpo and Sam Harris being among the biggest shareholders in Silver Rod stores? Silver Rod stores belonged to that Max Lippmann. Weyburn was probably involved in getting them Jabina Ralston, but he was not involved with that other Max Lippmann. I wrote, so we have a legend of a bunch of film amateurs who pooled their money together and came up with some crap nobody wanted to see. Now we have Behind the Legend, where some experienced comedians got together with experienced film people, 
were funded by lawyers just coming into oil money who they seem to have known since childhood and still come up with crap nobody wants to see. And at this point, Matthew suddenly looked back at where, and, and, and he wrote, holy shit, just got to Silverrod stores. Hadn't seen that bit till now. <laughs> and th- then we went on to look at the studio business. I mean, there's no point in retelling everything because it's a lot of it's in, in the article. Um, the last thing that's kind of funny on this, and we can open it up to, the, to discussion, once the article had been written and we were really happy with it, went through shev- several versions, Matthew wrote and we, we annotated uh, things to say, you know, you're, you're leaving this avenue open for the non-believers. <laughs> Close it. <laughs> uh, things like that. And um, then when the article actually was published, we started to post links to it at different places on Facebook, and we were reporting in back. And I think most of this is Bob here. I did Marx Brothers Archive. I did the Marx Brothers and More page. I did the Marx Brothers Community page. I did the Marx Brothers Cosplaying Bitches page. And then there was a kind of a, I did Marx Brothers Club community page. And then there was a kind of a double take. Did you really? Is there one? So, <laughs> that was... <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the last couple of things, maybe, before we open this up to more discussion about what the hell is going on here, um, was we also... And I'm not, I'm not going to mention places here, because we got pissed off about... Um, certain sites where we'd post it which we thought this is right up their alley and they just weren't biting there were people who were saying this is too difficult and and I said um, did you see the overload comments on the <clears throat> won't mention the name of the site some people don't want mysteries elucidated they just want bite sized popcorn that won't tax the brain so this is the the story of how we, we, we actually made a breakthrough on Humorisk which we still think doesn't exist but we never are going to be as sure again as we used to be that it just doesn't my, my money's on South America, if anywhere. We know that the company that might have bought the negative also had big dealings there. So let's open it up. I've been hogging the show for a few minutes now. Okay, yeah. I mean, my memory of this is that I went into this with a beginning and an end uh, and no middle. And my beginning was that I'm just one of those annoying people who just doesn't trust <laughs> what I'm told unless I can actually see the smoke coming out of the gun. And I particularly don't trust what I'm told if I'm being told it by Groucho Marx. And so I, I, I just used to get very, very frustrated at the way people would just instinctively accept um, what is obviously an anecdotal version of something that happened that's being told to us by a professional comedian. And in the early days that we were researching this, we would get this a lot from 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 you know well-known people. There's no point. There's no point in pursuing <laughs> this. It was destroyed. There was only one copy. It was destroyed, and we know it was because Groucho said so. And I used to think, well, well, if you've got a source as reliable as that, then then yeah, what a what on earth are we bothering? So 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 a there was. Just just my my bloody mindedness at that but also of course at the back at the back of the cupboard i did have this this uh report from a from a film historian that he had seen this this cutting that said that real craft studios were going to issue this movie in 1922 with the four marx brothers and i knew that that was 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 insubstantial that that wouldn't stand up on its own and that it would only work 
as a punchline. Therefore, I needed to make the case uh, step by step that would lead up to that in such a way that it would hold up even without it, at least as a, as a, as a valid proposition. And so that was the task that we were set. We just knew that there were so many things that didn't fit. We knew, for instance, that Harpo was offering a reward for this film uh, over a period of 10 years and more. And the the reward he was offering was going up. You know, it started off in the mid thirties at a thousand dollars. It was 10,000 by the mid forties. So obviously they didn't believe the stories they were telling. So if they didn't, why on earth should we? So, so what we needed was some, uh, a, some reason, some reason to think that it wasn't what we were told, which was a, a kind of a jeu d'esprit, you know, a, 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 a just a, a silly little endeavor by amateurs you know that and mm. and so we found you know that these were serious money men that these were people who were not going to just throw a film away if they didn't think it was good they were going to try and get their money back so we needed some some means by which uh they would get their money back uh but somehow the trail would then go cold because the trail does then go cold and and the the very satisfying thing about what i'd already been told which was that it was bought by real craft was that that totally separate from that fact or from that suggestion was that real craft gave us a reason why it would have gone cold which was that they went bust right at the moment when if they'd had that film they would have been prepping it for release so it made perfect sense but it also opened up the possibility that they might have made a few prints of this thing and also that they might have retitled it and that you know changes things again uh, as rodney uh, or stuart <laughs> again yeah. as stuart says uh it, it doesn't alter things much it changes them from nil to almost nil but that's a significant change to me this is the holy grail as far as lost film on the marx brothers um personally more than the missing parts of horse feathers and more than the missing parts of night at the opera uh even more than the interview with the five marx brothers much as i'd love to see that uh, humoresque, if we had it, would be the earliest footage of any of these guys that, that would be available to us. And although we know it would be quite different from their stage personas, either before or after um, the period when it was made, it would it would fill in so many gaps in our knowledge of them. And this period, I, for me, is maybe the most interesting in their career, because much like you pointed out, Bob, the period after Thalberg uh, died... This was a major transitional moment for them. You know, they were trying things and they were failing spectacularly left and right. You know, they had a kind of lukewarm reception on their their first attempt at a, a British tour. And then they were blacklisted by Albie and couldn't play big time vaudeville anymore. And they tried a legit musical. You know, they had tried uh, uh, Cinderella Girl or, or The Street Cinderella, whichever you prefer. That hadn't worked out for them. This is the road that eventually leads them to I'll Say She Is and Broadway. And Humoresque is an important stop on that road. It's also really interesting to me that Ned Wayburn was involved and might have had something to do with uh, Jobina Ralston's involvement, because Wayburn is the guy who introduces the Marx Brothers to the Johnstone Brothers, and that's what leads to the Johnstones writing I'll Say She Is for them. Uh, so it's it's deeply embedded in this period when they were trying to figure out what to do with themselves and wondering if they had a future at all. Obviously, a lot of the stuff I said before was slightly prepared, um, but I, I, I chime in with Noah's sentiments here. I, 
obviously I want everything. I want to find everything we've discussed, all the lost footage. Um, and perhaps number two would be the five of them late in their lives. But <laughs> there is something that yeah. nothing else can replace. Uh, humorous. doesn't matter how lousy it is. Uh, what it would tell us, we'd look at every gesture and think we we either know or we don't know. Every single thing would attain some kind of importance. It doesn't deserve, but we would give it. <laughs> we would give that importance to it for sure. Um, the one other thing I'm just thinking right now, as we're discussing this, um, they were already, <laughs> I think, as early as was it 1912. Certainly not much later. They were already traveling around with their own um, train. Uh, we've seen these reports. Uh, I think when they went to Canada, places like that. You wonder. Obviously, there's no there's no report of anything. You wonder whether somewhere something else earlier, maybe not newsreel footage, but something might have at one point been filmed. Probably not on a stage. Maybe something. Maybe something else. Um, you you wonder whether um, their British tour. Which such a flop? Whether some cameraman recorded anything of that, um, of of their arrival or something. So you can never rule out these things. They're just, um, but you also cannot guarantee anything surfacing. There were radio appearances during that period. You know, um, uh, all the Marx Brothers appeared on the radio during I'll say she is um, during its pre-Broadway uh, tour. Those radio broadcasts, of course, were live broadcasts in 1923 so the chance that a recording ever existed are are basically zero but and they would uh, be the only you know, radio appearances we would have of, of zeppo that's right well there is him as a singer yeah. which came up in the last podcast i think or the one before that and perhaps we should mention uh this film kiss in the dark a silent film that supposedly zeppo makes an appearance in uh there are two reels of the film that still exist but uh, Zeppo is not in them. He probably, if he appears, he would be later in the film. But remember, we were talking about Zeppo here, so why bother? <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned it. Well, it. It is interesting. That, I mean, that that I mean, the, the the two that are always mentioned as guest stars in this movie are Anne Pennington and Zeppo. And if you think Zeppo of all members of the of of the Marx Brothers is the one they get, which is in itself intriguing as well. Why did they go for Zeppo, or or how did it turn up to come about? Was he did he just know somebody who thought this would be a good idea and got him into it? Yeah, or was the nature of the film such that <laughs> you know they just they could put a normal guy in there somewhere, but uh, they couldn't have made room in in whatever that film's concept was for. Hey guys, I got one of the Marxes to be in our film. Oh, which one? Which one? The the, the guy who replaced Gummo. <laughs> Oh, but the thing is, you, until unless the, unless those reels turn up with him in it, you won't know for sure whether he was being the Zeppo we know, or because he was the only representative in the movie of a famous comedy act, whether he had some comedy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it turned up and he was magnificent in it? Yeah, <laughs> I think finding humor risk in three D is more likely than that. <laughs> Okay, that's it for another edition of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. If any of you have been wondering what on earth we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes or so, uh, the piece on humour risk can be found online at Brenton Film. Uh, and there you will discover uh, everything that we were we managed to uncover about this uh, this tantalising lost film. There's quite a few uh, surprises there and new uh, new bits of information that uh, cast a different light on on the movie. So uh, do do uh, please go there and, and have a look. Hope you've enjoyed 
the show today do please keep telling your friends sharing the links and we'll be back next time with more of the same before we go i just want to say a few words about a very dear friend of the marx brothers council and someone whose name will probably be familiar to many of you george bettinger i casually mentioned him in our previous podcast in the interim between that edition and this one came the terrible news that he was suddenly taken from us george was a one-off he was a man who ate and breathed vintage showbiz and a skilled impressionist who was dedicated to keeping the great names of entertainment alive by incorporating them into his innovative radio show the mom and pop shop the idea behind the show was that laurel and hardy burns and allen the marxes and the stooges were all still around in the 21st century and stopping off at his fictitious radio candy store which served in his words as an adjustment chamber to ease his guests through their transition into the modern world. The sketches would then be interspersed with an eclectic choice of 1950s music and interviews. It was my enormous privilege to have been a guest myself when my first book was published. One sensed that there was a great deal of wish fulfilment in George's mom and pop shop, as if he needed his own adjustment chamber. Specialising as he did in a kind of comedy and a kind of performance and a kind of show business that seemed to have increasingly little relevance in our brave new world of brashness, sensation and provocation. Those of us who shared his tastes and his outlook wouldn't have wanted him any other way, but it meant that his talent had a far narrower outlet than should have been the case. Radio being the most ephemeral of entertainment media, the happy memories of those who were fortunate enough to encounter it will be what mostly survives of his work. But he did issue a CD of choice sketches from the mom and pop shop on the original cast label, including a very clever one in which the Marx Brothers are brought back in a time machine, but from different points in their lives. So a bemused younger Chico interacts with the elderly Groucho. I don't know if it's still still attainable, uh, but do all you can to track one down, if you can. And no, you're not having mine, signed as it is by George to my son Edward. And that's the other thing about George. I've said he was talented, and he was. But he was also one of life's harpos, a man of whom I've never heard anything said that was not couched in the very warmest of praise. It's always a risk getting to know the people you admire. So many of us are prickly and petty and unpredictable. And why not? That's simply to say that we're only human. But George was none of those things. He was generous, he was kind, he was thoughtful, and he went out of his way to help out. If you have a glass, raise it now to one of the world's life affirmers. Hail and farewell, George. This edition of the Marx Brothers Council podcast is dedicated to your memory. Our end music this time is, in a sense, a lost Marx Brothers song number. It's called Keep On Doing What You're Doing, and it's being performed by Wheeler and Woolsey in their film Hips, Hips, Hooray. But the participation of Thelma Todd is not the only Marx link. It was originally written by Colmer and Ruby for inclusion in Duck Soup, and it was going to be performed by none other than that warbling fool, Herbert Zeppo Marx. So have a listen, imagine that it's Zeppo you can hear, and from all of us, until next time, goodbye. Isn't the view beautiful from up here? Yeah, but it makes me dizzy. I like him dizzy. Maybe you don't realize what you've done to me. You've made me your slave. You're what I crave constantly. When I see your smiling eyes, 
and behold your charms. It's heaven to me. I wanna be in your arms. Just keep on doing what you're doing, although it's leading me to ruin. Just keep on doing what you're doing, cause I love what you're doing to me. Just keep on doing what you're doing, although I know there's trouble brewing. Just keep on doing what you're doing, cause I love what you're doing to me. Your lips as red as wine. Our lips I can't resist And once they're pressed to mine I'll wanna be kissed and kissed Just keep on doing what you're doing Although it's leading me to ruin Just keep on doing what you're doing Cause I love what you're doing to me just keep on doing what you're doing, although it's leading me to ruin. Just keep on doing what you're doing, cause I love what you're doing to me. Just keep on doing what you're doing, although I know there's trouble brewing. Just keep on doing what you're doing, cause I love what you're doing to me. Your lips were made to kiss, your arms to hold me tight. But something tells me this, I'm flirting with dynamite. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Although it's leading me to ruin, just keep on Cause I love what you're doing to me. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Although it's leading me to ruin, just keep on doing what you're doing. Cause I love what you're doing to me. Just keep on doing what you're doing Although I know there's trouble brewing Just keep on doing what you're doing You don't know what you're doing to me You have those eyes that shine uh -huh. Just like a suit of serge yes. When they look into mine uh -huh. I'm certain that we should merge here, just keep on doing what you're doing, although it's leading me to ruin. Just keep on doing what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing to me.